You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure to welcome Christina Johnson as our special guest today. She is a very unique speaker because she has a very long history with us at Stanford. She started out as an undergrad here, a master's student here, and her PhD student here in electrical engineering. But she certainly didn't start th stop there. She went on to a very successful academic career at the University of Colorado, and then was asked to become the dean of the School of Engineering at Duke, then became the provost at Johns Hopkins, and then became the Undersecretary of Energy. Then she left there to start her own company. So she has a tremendous amount of experience in academics, in government, and now in private industry. So we're going to talk a lot today about uh, change making and leadership in these different types of environments. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So um, I want to start out talking about these different types of environments, about what it's like. Let's start in academics, because the folks in the room here certainly are familiar with academics, as they're, most of them are mm -hmm. students. What is it like to be in a leadership position in an academic institution? <laughs> I always love the fact that Jim Plummer, our dean, always says that leading faculty is like herding cats, and all you can do is move the cat food. So talk a little bit about what, what it means to be a leader in an academic institution. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great question. First of all, the best job in academics is being a graduate student. All right. <laughs> yes, well, that was, uh, it, it, it's true, actually. And then it, the be second best job is being a professor. You have all the freedom and some responsibility. You have to go to class, you have to show up to class, you have to, you know, really pay attention to your graduate students and your undergraduate students. And, and then, um, so when I was a faculty member, I was telling Tina earlier, I, I swore I wouldn't do three things in my life. I, I would never be a dean, I would never start a company, and I'd never write a book. And I, I have the title for the book now, so never say never. <laughs> um, you know, I think the most important thing starting out, um, more, not so much as a faculty member, but really as a, a dean or a provost, uh, it's probably true in any organization, is to get to know people. Because uh, as one of my graduate students told me, people want to know you care before they care what you know. So when I started out as Dean of Engineering at Duke, actually I went to one of my roommates in college who ended up being CEO of E-Trade. That's another lesson, stay close to people you know here because you never know. Um, and she said, look, the first thing you ought to do is sit down with every single faculty member and just ask them, you know, what are you passionate about? And that way they'll know you want to get to know them before you have an agenda. So I got really interesting answers like, one faculty member was very passionate about golf, so we talked about golf for about an hour. And another faculty member was very passionate about engineering education, and we talked for two and a half hours. And I finally said, look, you can go to dinner if you want with me, but i got to eat. So um, I think that was my biggest lesson, was what uh, Kathy Levinson, who uh, retired as CEO of E-Trade, took them public, told me, is sit down and get to know people. So when I went to Hopkins as provost, uh, we had many faculty members, you know, over 2,000, so I couldn't sit down with everyone. But I sat down with all the department chairs, and the way I did that was I just had the pro lunch with the provost. And that had some unintended benefits, which we'll talk about later. But Great. anyway. So then moving from academics into government. I mean, I don't know how much experience the people in this room have in government, but I have none. And I can imagine that it has to be totally different, that political environment. Were there skills that, that mapped onto it? And what were the biggest surprises of being a leader in that type of environment? Uh, the biggest challenge, I think, when I became undersecretary was that um, 
I, I, how many of us are faculty members or have taught at one time? Right. Okay, so, or maybe even graduate students. I don't know about y'all, but when I would go to a conference and write a talk, usually be on the plane on the way out there. So the biggest change is that everything that, every talk had to be approved. So I'd have to write four days in advance what the talk is and send it through, uh, you know, the administration to make sure I wasn't making policy because that's one way you get fired is by making policy because that's for the president to do. So um, I managed not to do that, which was very good. Uh, so that was, uh, but I think, you know, seriously, one of the things that I learned in government is um, the amount of preparation. Uh, again, going to meetings, I had a briefing book every night that was about that thick, and I would work from, you know, basically 6 a.m. till 10 at night. I'd get dinner, and then I'd do my briefing book. And I would have it be this thick, and I'd have all the, the view graphs, and I had a great staff that would write position papers and say, well, this is the issue, this is the issue, these are the considerations, this is what you need to look at. So that was very, very helpful in terms of knowing it. But we had, uh, as undersecretary, we had a budget of $10 billion, which was all the energies, so fossil energy, nuclear energy, renewable energy, um, energy yeah, reliability, and then environmental cleanup. And then we had $36 billion in the Recovery Act, so there was a lot to manage at that time. And then, you know, things would happen like um, the BP oil spill, right? And so all of a sudden, you're, you're cranking away at all these things, and these emergencies come up that have to be dealt with. So I think being very flexible and adaptable uh, was really a skill that I learned uh, in academia, and it certainly was very helpful in government. So then you go from academics to government, and now you're running your own venture, Right. which is in the energy space. So maybe you That's could tell correct. us a little bit about what it is so that um, everyone knows what you're focused on now. And then how, what skills you gain from these places, you know, these different past roles that have affected you and influenced you now. One of the things that um, I think there, a thread that went through, whether it's academia or government or industry, is really trying to take an organization and make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So one of the things that we looked at is in terms of energy policy, Oftentimes, you'll see fossil people look at fossil energy by themselves. The nuclear people, wind or solar or geo or hydro, they look at their little piece together in energy efficiency. And we ran a uh, strategic technology energy plan called STEP. And we had 100 different people in Department of Energy working on this. And the goal was to see how do these different pieces work together. And it's really important to take, as the president just announced even a week ago and has said consistently throughout the administration, <laughs> You need a portfolio. There's not going to be a silver bullet. And if you look historically about how energy has migrated over time, you know, wood was our main energy source until a few hundred years ago, and then we migrated um, from wood to coal to oil. And each one of those migrations has taken, you know, anywhere between 60 and 100 years. Well, we don't have that kind of time now if we're going to address some of the really pressing energy issues facing this country and the world. So. We did this plan, it was a portfolio approach, and when I left the administration, I was real committed to carrying out the plan. And so part of the plan appeared in the um, President's State of the Union address a year ago, which is, what's the pathway to get to 80% clean electricity by 2035? So I started a company called Enduring Energy. Our focus now is Enduring Revenue. I hope that <laughs> resonates with all the entrepreneurs <laughs> in the room. And we're looking at what pieces of that energy plan that we could really undertake and make a difference. So um, the first step is looking at hydropower. A lot of people don't realize that there are already 80,000 dams in the U.S., and 97% do not produce electricity. So they're there for navigation, they're there for recreation, they're there for flood control, but many of these could be powered and produce uh, dispatchable energy. So what I mean by dispatchable is it's there on demand when you need it. 
So what happens when you put up a wind turbine and the wind doesn't blow? Or you have a solar panels and the sun isn't shining, the cloud comes over, or at night, the diurnal variation. So hydropower is one set of uh, reliable energy that allows you to fill in and create other sorts of services, which I can get into or not. So a lot of our consulting work right now is helping companies expand their hydropower and look at ways of exploiting really clever ideas and energy efficiency. And one of the most clever ideas that I found is right here at Stanford, not unusual. And uh, one of the professors in electrical engineering economics, uh, uh, Professor Balaji Prabhakar, has done some really clever work about how to move people and provide incentives towards changing the way they uh, commute and uh, healthcare, and we're looking at maybe there are other avenues in energy to get, because this is a big problem. It's going to require all of us to contribute. So we're working in a, across a bunch of these different fields within the plan. So that's what we're doing now. Well, we teach our students in our entrepreneurship classes that the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. Yes, I saw and that. And we certainly have a lot of students on campus who are passionate about alternative energy and energy in general. Um, right. They look at this as a place where they can make a contribution. Where do you see the biggest problems slash opportunities for them? Well, in our uh, step plan, if you will, we looked at really five pillars, if you will. And the first one is decarbonizing the electric sector and then electrifying the transportation sector. So right now, if you look at the electrical sector, uh, half of the electricity is produced from coal, about another 30% from natural gas. So renewables are about 20% of which, um, well, I'd say clean electricity, including uh, nuclear and renewables, share between 20 and 30%, about 30%, I think. So nuclear is roughly 18, 19%, hydropower is about 8%, and the rest is wind, solar, and biomass. So that's a real critical one, is, is trying to do a flip on that, is to say have 70% of our electricity from clean uh, sources. And that can also include uh, carbon capture and reuse, uh, natural gas. So, and then 30% that doesn't have those sorts of uh, capture mechanisms. And that, so that's the first pillar. The second pillar is after you decarbonize the electric sector, then electrify the light-duty vehicle fl fleet. I can almost say that. Um, and that's really important. I think accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles, hybrids, um, you know, the CAFE standards, getting more for the mile for our petroleum. And then for heavy duty and uh, aviation, which is a smaller part, the aviation is I think about 9% and heavy duty might be, you know, 30-ish percent if I remember that correctly, is doing fuel switching. So having that to move towards more of a, of a, uh, another source of fuel, whether it's a biofuel or other things. So the third sector is a smart grid whereby you can do more uh, clever things around energy efficiency, and I think that's really important. Energy conservation, I think this is a really uh, important distinction that, that uh, I certainly didn't appreciate before I became uh, undersecretary. And as, there's a difference between energy efficiency around appliances and lighting, for example, and energy conservation. And what I mean by that is, with uh, lights, I, um, I actually, for holiday gifts, I give my friends CFLs. <laughs> now I'll give them LEDs. You may not want to be on my holiday list, but that's what you get. And what, what I noticed is I was visiting a friend who I'd given all the CFLs, and they were leaving them on at night. I'm like, why are you doing that? Oh, well, they're so much more efficient now. I can just leave them on all the time, which means they're using more energy in some sense, depending. And so what we found is that there are some really interesting studies about lighting over 700 years, going from the efficiency change from a candle to an LED. And the efficiency factor is, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, it's thousands and thousands. But the energy use uh, 
actually taken into account um, the population change in, in, is many more thousands, and I forget what the, the difference is. And so there are certain things where the money you save is being reinvested into buying more. How many uh, have been in a home that has two refrigerators, one in the house, one in the garage? Well, you know, refrigeration is one of the classic examples of how standards have really moved the needle in terms of size, cost, and efficiency. But then people buy two. Now, where I think energy efficiency and the investments in really pay off are in buildings, both commercial sector as well as residential. Because for about $5,000 investment, you can save about 30% of the energy. Well, you're not going to save enough to buy another house. So those savings, you, with that money, you may reinvest in the economy, which is fine, or you may save it. And we spend about 10% of our GDP on energy. So you do get an impact there. So I think it's appreciating and understanding how energy efficiency, energy conservation trade off. And then um, there's a fifth pillar, which... Uh, if I could remember it, it's very important. I might have already ripped through them all, but anyway, those are at least four of the five that well, are important. One of the things that's really interesting in this sector is that the government and policy plays a big role. Right. And so if you're an entrepreneur in this sector, what do you need to know about working with the government? You know, what, obviously the government has certain levers in terms sure. of laws right. and policies and standards that can get set. I mean, that must be both a, a, a huge opportunity, but also a, a barrier for entrepreneurs in this space. Talk a little bit about you know, what that means. Sure. Well, I think, so, um, you know, entrepreneurship in the energy sector is, it, well, it's critically important, and I really encourage it. It's, it's a, um, it doesn't fit exactly into any previous model, if you, if you will, in my view. So you can look at sort of a traditional VC model that's been extremely successful in IT and biotech. And in the energy space, it's harder because, as I mentioned before, it takes a long time to develop some of these technologies and a long time to migrate from one energy use to another. So I think that what we need is a new model, which is uh, patient capital. It's actually a model that I'm thinking about uh, exploring with the venture that I have, uh, where you, you have an opportunity to have a mix of investments in things that will have a near-term payoff to keep your investors at least happy. Happy investors are a good thing. I'm sure that must be a principle um, in EPI. Uh, at the same time, when you have time to invest and then create uh, the kind of change that you can see happen almost immediately in some of the, the IT revolution. So I think that's different. I think that really you need capital investment more in the 10 to 15 years rather than the 5 to 10 years. And so finding sources of capital that are, are patient, I think, is, is really important as one thing. Um, it's also, in some sense, a very conservative industry. And I think I, I had the opportunity to sit down several times under Secretary Tom Friedman, and he made a very good point at the first breakfast we had, which is, here's the challenge in uh, clean energy. I'm going to give you a light bulb, and I want to charge you more for that light bulb. And you say, but Tom, I already got light bulbs. I can already have them. And he says, but I give you this box, and in this box, you can communicate with anybody, anytime, anywhere in the world, and it costs you a thousand bucks. This is the true story of the first cell phones. You know, many of you are too, too young to appreciate that, but they used to be analog, they used to be very big, and they used to be um, very expensive. And so over time, you know, they migrated, but they gave you a new functionality you didn't have before. You know, and people bought thousands of them, even though they were much more expensive. And that's the challenge we have in energy, is we need to provide. Uh, in order to make a change, and I've been trying to study change movement, what, what does cause people to change, hence I found my way to Balaji, um, effectively and to do that kind of investment, even though it might be against your, your economic interest to do that. Well, clearly you are an innovator. 
I know that you have 129 patents in the U.S. and, and internationally, that you've won the you know, highest award in engineering, the Fritz Award. Um, so you're passionate about coming up with new ideas. Right. Where do you see in these different places that you've been, <clears throat> whether it's in government or academics or in industry, the places where innovation is more fertile? Because, mm. you know, we clearly need all these different pillars for things to move forward. And where do you see right. innovation um, being the most vibrant? You know, I think it's vibrant in each one of those sectors, but it's very different. Okay. Uh, clearly, um, at the very, you know, I would say, fundamental, both, I think fundamental research can be both basic and applied. All right, so the opposite of basic for me is not fundamental. I mean, you have fundamental engineering research, you have fundamental scientific research. So it's, uh, the nice thing about being in a university is you can come up with all sorts of ideas and nobody ever has to buy them. <laughs> you know, because that's not the purpose. The purpose is to be in a, in a supportive, nurturing environment with great leadership like you have at the engineering, uh, actually at the university with uh, President Hennessy, who's a faculty member, uh, professor of mine when I was here, and uh, Dean Plummer, that are visionary leaders that put together great, attract great people to work with students who provide the kind of resources. I mean, this entire engineering quad was not even a glimmer in our eye 30 years ago when I was an undergraduate here. So, And uh, pr provide a nurturing environment. And something else I notice is good coffee in the area, very important. <laughs> and so you've got all the elements by which to be great innovators. It, what's nice is, and this is why I think that I had the time of my life as a graduate student here, begin as an undergraduate, because I didn't have to hit a bottom line. I was here, I could invent things that, and learn how to do that without having to worry about bottom line. However, I did have one invention when I was here. May I share it? Yeah, please. Okay. So I was an undergraduate student making holograms. My faculty member was Professor Joseph Goodman and just retired, fabulous man. Ended up being my PhD advisor and we made holograms. And uh, uh, so holography, you know, three-dimensional pictures as opposed to two-dimensional pictures. Everybody has knows what they are now. They were a little more innovative 30-some years ago. And uh, I, I thought about inventing a puzzle where the pieces would be equal. They wouldn't be interlocking, but they, you couldn't, on a 2D surface, distinguish them, but they had 3D projections. And in an image plane hologram, you'd just see one piece of the puzzle, but from three dimensions. So we made, uh, I got together with an art student. There's a, there's a reason I want to raise that. And we did uh, holograms of the uh, King Tut exhibit was at, uh, up in San Francisco the first time around in, in the 70s. And so we made one of the, the uh, King Tut masks, and then we cut it up in little pieces. We took it to the Office of Technology Licensing, which was Niels Reimer, if you know who he is, classic, great guy, in a trailer behind Branner with one assistant. That was all OTL was. I mean, this is like 76, before by Dole. And I brought him the toy. He said, we don't do toys. And I'm, go back to my dorm room, you know put it in the drawer, and then uh, continue to kind of work. I, actually, the first time I went to him in 76, when I came back with the prototype, it was more like 7980, because that's when the exhibit was. Now, we'd had uh, the Bayh-Dole Act, 8081. We'd had uh, a lot of the, the DNA patents and other things, and this was a big deal. Now we have a whole floor of Encina Hall. I'm thinking, this is cool. We do puzzles now. So uh, we went all the way through patenting. I went to the patent office, tried to get it through, never did get a patent on it, forgot about it. Came back to teach, and I was ex at Colorado my first year, 4A optics, I showed them the puzzle, and one of the kids in the class brought in the next day exactly the prototype 
that was being sold, not of King Tut, but of some other things, on the mall in Boulder. <laughs> so clearly, the, these, I guess the message there is twofold. First thing I learned at Stanford was be very cross-disciplinary. I found great artists that work with me to create a really compelling puzzle. Second thing is if you think you're onto something good, stay with it. You just got to stay with it. You, you know, you, it's your idea. No one's going to ever be more passionate than you about your idea. Um, so that's sort of why I was, I've still been teaching all these years. So we had actually a deal from Mattel Toys on the table uh, to buy the, the patent, uh, if we got it patented. But we never got it patent issued, so they never bought the technology. So that's why I'm still working for a living. <laughs> well, I'm curious. I mean, so we certainly know that being in an academic environment yeah. leads to you know, tremendous freedom to explore lots right. of different topics. What about in the government? I mean, how free are you to come up with some wild, crazy idea and to say, you know, can we try this or what about that? And let's say you come up with the, the new, you know, hologram equivalent. You know, what do you do with it? Well, you know, it was a really kind of a magical time uh, coming into the administration with a, a new president, um, the Recovery Act, $36 billion. You can do a lot of good things with that. Um, and so we did have the opportunity uh, because there were certain parameters around the funding. And some of that was, was the 1603, some of that was manufacturing, some of that you know, was all into buckets. But within those buckets, the first thing that I noticed, and one of the reasons I got very excited about hydropower was there was no funding for hydropower because most people you know, didn't really think of hydropower as renewable energy. In fact, it was left out of the production tax credits, I think, until um, the 2005 or 2007 Energy Act. So we were able to, within the understanding of the uh, spirit of the particular legislation, get a grant out there in hydropower, a, a solicitation. And so we had people apply. We had 77 shovel-ready projects in hydropower. It was amazing. We could only fund seven. So that was one innovative thing. Something else that, that may be near and dear to your heart is that um, having been involved in entrepreneurship before, I looked at the SBIR program within DOE and actually was part of an industry, uh, industry <laughs> administrative-wide um, panel to try and look at reworking the SBIR program specifically to create jobs. So within the Department of Energy, we started a thing called the Accelerator Program. We took $50 million from the Recovery Act, and we set up a process so that we could... Um, there's, there's many valley of deaths. Everybody's heard about the valley of death, you know, crossing the chasm, et cetera. There's a big valley of death in the SBIR program, particularly the way that it, we were looking at it at DOE, because you'd get your proposal funded for six months, and then you'd have to write your phase two, and if that took another three or six months, what do you do for those three or six months? I mean, it's, you've got to, you know, keep your team together, and you have to to fund it. So what we did is that we would put together a fast track process by which you would apply for your phase one and phase two at the same time. So as soon as you finish your phase one, assuming that you hit all your milestones and targets, you could immediately start into your phase two. And then we did this accelerator program where, you know, it was a real important uh, vision that I was uh, pretty passionate about, which was job creation. I mean, with unemployment heading towards 10% at that particular time, fortunately it's much lower now, I thought that seeing how we could create jobs would be very important. That seemed to be what the president and people were really focused on, the secretary. So we looked at, could you find in the country 30 to 40 of those sort of small companies that had four or five, six employees that had a product and that what they needed was staying power? And I have a few slides on this I'll show at the end, where, you know, the... the um, the staying power to stay in business for a couple of years to figure out how not to just make one-offs, 
but to create a, a manufacturing process so they could create hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands, depending on what the market would bear, and reduce the cost of manufacturing so that they could actually attract customers and, and clients and uh, create a viable business and grow the business. And so I, I have a couple slides on the first quarter. We did set up the solicitation. I don't remember how many hundreds, maybe you know, many, many hundreds of uh, uh, people applied. We awarded 33 companies from 250K to about three million over three years, given staying power to develop the manufacturing process so by which they could scale up and then create the opportunity to hit a mass market, create more jobs. And in fact, what, we've, what it shows in the first quarter of that, of that program, which will run for three years, is that uh, the employment of these companies has grown by almost 15%. The cumulative revenue over five years is going to be a billion dollars improvement, they expect and the number of careers, not jobs. So very important thing that I always looked at was, you know, if you have a job for two years, that's fine. But really, how do we create careers? So if these small companies are able to grow uh, their, their, their um, employee base, those are careers that could potentially stay in business for 10 years or 20 years, 30 years or longer. So we're looking at being able to get almost a 3x improvement in with that funding in the employee base and grow from, say, about 1,500 employees to almost 5,000. So it was a pilot. And what I ultimately wanted to see happen was that that pilot would then be um, perpetuated or permeated through the administration. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, we're still doing that. Well, that's impressive. So I'm curious. I, I want to start talking a little bit about your career in general and uh, sort of lessons learned. You're, you're not very old, but you know, I'm sure you have some big life lessons you want to share with us. One is, how did you make decisions about taking on these very different challenges along the way? I mean, as you said at the beginning, you, know, you said, boy, I would never be a dean, and then you ended up a dean. Right. So you know, I'd never start a company, or start a company. So what, um, what were the decision-making processes like when these dis different opportunities presented themselves? You know, I think part of saying that I'd never do something was really a, a, a confidence. You know, I had a great dean at the University of Colorado, Dean Seabass. He subsequently passed away, unfortunately, and he was fabulous. And, you know, great leadership here. I never thought I'd be a professor, and then you become a professor. And, then, you know, so I think it's, 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 it's putting in place the steps by which you can step up and step up. Um, so I think part of it is, um, I mean, I think you've got to trust your heart, trust your gut, right? I mean... I, I once heard a speaker at Stanford when I was here as an undergraduate saying that they had done some wonderful things in literature, that they'd be more scared to be a Stanford student than they would be what they ended up doing, which I thought was hilarious. So I think that, you know, every new place can be intimidating. It's just getting used to the environment. Right. So I, I think just following your heart and you'll know. Right. And sort of growing into these different roles that seem right. really daunting when you look at them from afar. Right. So I'm going to ask maybe about 10 more minutes of questions. I'm going to open up to people in the audience. So uh, feel free to start noodling on what questions you might want to ask uh, Dr. Johnson. So um, let's go back in time to when you were a student here. Knowing <laughs> what you know now, are there things you wish you had learned in school or opportunities you had taken advantage of or things you had wished you had remembered? Uh, whatever it is that, that now, looking back on your academic experience. I, well, I wished I would have seen the um, the whole IT emergence. I mean, you know, to have been here in '75 through '80. Oh my gosh! You know, we were we were working on VAC '70s. We were doing talk, right? Which was like IM. Yeah, you, know, you could talk, and it was so crude from terminals that 
you know, when you do the backspace key, you'd see it erase the, the letters. You know, I wish I'd had the vision to appreciate what that could be. Um, we used to get around, even in the 70s, we'd sit around and we'd think about, well, what cool companies could we start? And we said, wow, this, this software thing, you know, I think it's going to be big in education. And maybe we should do something in that. And so I think that um, invariably, how many of you had the experience that um, you think of an idea and you don't think it's very good and then you see it published under somebody else's name? And all of a sudden you realize, oh, I guess that was a pretty interesting idea, you know? So I think that um, there's some ideas that we had that, that probably were worth pursuing, but just I was very focused on the goal and, and getting a degree. Uh, having said that, um, you know, I wouldn't have, have changed really much of anything. I mean, I think one of the things that I learned at Stanford was the real cross-disciplinary nature of this place. I mean, 30 years ago, this was a, a really a striving aspiring and inspiring institution as it is today. I mean, people used to say that we're the Harvard of the West or Harvard with Stanford of the East, but people didn't really believe it 30 years ago. You know, it's a different place now, obviously, you know. Um, so I think that, I think probably one thing is if I would have been able to see the future and realize that you're all sitting next to the future leaders in whatever field they pick. And the most important thing is to take those relationships with you. Now with Facebook and everything else, it's easy to do. It was a little harder back in the day without you know, the technology piece. So just to, you know, stay in touch. Well, looking on paper, your yeah. career looks as if it is completely and totally pristine and that you have made these monumental leaps that are you know, from leaps from tall buildings in a single bound. Um, are there, any, are there any failures along the way? I mean, are there any things that go, oops, I probably shouldn't have done that, or that was something that you, know, you wish you would have done differently? Well, you asked a, a question just a minute ago about you know, what I wished I had learned uh, when I was here. I, I was pretty focused in the technology place, and I took as many technical classes, math, science, physics, engineering. And I, I, I wished I would have appreciated more the humanities. I did take some signature classes from some of the great profs, but not enough. And so I didn't start reading, I think, the books you'd find in the self-help part of the bookstore, you know. Um, so things like The Four Agreements. Has anybody read The Four Agreements? Okay, so a few of you, right. So, you know, I mean, it's just simple things about, uh, they're very simple concepts, but I can tell you, if you can master these, you can run any, any, any institution in the country. So don't take things personally. Always do your best. Be impeccable with your word. And don't make assumptions. And I think it's the last one that I would, would drill down a little bit on. And that is, um, although I think, uh, fortunately, because of my sports background, I had an instinct about people. But when I went to Duke, the best advice I got was from Levinson, who we used to call her Levinson Levy, uh, who said, you know, sit down and talk with people and get to know them. And I did. But I must say, I made some assumptions that uh, fortunately I was able to, to uh, resurrect. And one was about a faculty member who was very different than me, uh, had taught 100 semesters at Duke, lovely man, gorgeous guy. Charlie Harmon just passed away this year, a fabulous guy. And I thought, you know, we have nothing in common. You know, I'm on this, this young upstart, you know, first female dean, you know. And I made an assumption that he and I wouldn't get along. And as a result, um, we didn't really talk much for the first year. But then we started to build the, the largest academic building uh, that's ever, that had been done at Duke to, up to that time, which is very similar to the biodesign project called the CMOS, Center for Interdisciplinary Engineering, Medicine, and Applied Sciences. And Charlie came to me someday, and you know, he said, you know, my background's in me mechanical, and 50% of the cost of your building is going to be in the AC and the mechanicals. 
And I thought, Charlie, would you help me? And he goes, absolutely. And we formed a bond. And that was surprising. You know, I think it was, and it was very special. Um, but I think it taught me that you really need to have a, um, like a kitchen cabinet. And he became my kitchen cabinet. So he'd, he'd come to me and he'd say, um, you know, I think this faculty member needs a little bit of care and feeding. You know, we just stop by his or her office. And, and it's really important to have folks like that. And sometimes if you make assumptions, you don't see that. So I want to ask a question about women in engineering okay. and science. Because if you look around this room, yes, we have some women. But I would say, you know, the vast majority are men. Yeah. And here you are, this incredibly accomplished woman in the world of engineering. Yeah. And uh, why is it that we see so few women in science and engineering? And what can be done to right. change that? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so at, uh, at Duke, one of the things that, that uh, we had is a... Um, for a long time, actually, is the first accredited biomedical engineering program. And so some of the research that's been done at NSF has said that women will stay in technical fields if they can align their career with um, a social good. And so biomedical engineering is 50% women at, at Duke. I'm sure at Stanford now, I know you have a, a very uh, a graduate program, and, and I'm sure maybe by now an undergraduate program in bio, bioengineering. So I think that you'll see across the country that bio, bioengineering is a very... Uh, very even um, men and women. Same in environmental engineering and some of the areas where I think that this study by NSF has borne out. Um, you know, I think all of us being social beings don't, I mean, the, the number of times I've talked to m m women and men that left engineering to go uh, to, um, when I was dean of engineering, you say the dark side. I've since learned that, that arts and sciences, it would not be appropriate to say anymore. As, as provost, I learned to not say that anymore. Uh, and I don't feel that, but I would do it as a joke. But who would leave engineering was because they didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day. Well, how many of us in our job sit in front of a computer all day? I mean, you have your screen on all the time. So I think it's a perspective that, that uh, perhaps engineering is not a, a welcoming field. And it's a fabulous career for men and women. And I think it's actually a, it's an issue for attracting our best and brightest into engineering, you know, men and women. So I think that that's something is to look at, and we've, we talked earlier about how do you get retention. Um, when I became dean, 60% of the students would leave engineering. And of the students that would graduate, many of the best and brightest were going to Wall Street at that particular time. So in terms of the future of our country, I think if we're going to rebuild the middle class and invest in our infrastructure, we need to have more engineers and more individuals that know, I mean, what does an engineer do, right? So when I was an undergraduate here, they ask any of my professors, I used to go to class every day, almost with the same t-shirt on that I didn't wash as often I should have, which unfortunately on the front, but fortunately on the front would say, I'm an engineer, and on the back would say, what's your problem, right? <laughs> that's what engineers do. They solve problems that are important to society. And uh, that's why I'm so passionate about engineering for women and men, because it's really important, and it's about project management, and we manage projects, and we know how to take a big problem and break it down into little pieces and then put it back together again. I mean, I am an unabashed chauvinist for engineering. 
And so I think that I think that's one part of it is is the alignment of careers and social good. I think the second thing is having role models. So I'd ask kids, and mainly women, that would come into Duke because it was about thirty percent women, seventy percent men. You know, why are you an engineer? And invariably, it's because of a parent was an engineer. So we don't, I think, as a society, in the same way, value engineering as as internationally. It's um, as some of the uh, other countries do. I mean, I remember going to a uh, a program in Mexico in 1980, and you know, all the hot guys were engineers. I mean, you know, that was just the hot thing to do. And um, I mean, I was sort of interested in. Well, anyway, getting back to focus. <laughs> um, where were we? What was the question? <laughs> Can me, we erase the tape me, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me let me ask you about. And this is my last question before I open it up to all of the audience for their questions. How did Stanford prepare you for this career? Because right. you know, students here come to the university with the hope that this helps them launch you know, into the world prepared to take on big challenges and solve sure. problems. Yep. Uh, how did Stanford do that for you? You know, I think that Stanford was very much ahead of the game when it came to understanding that big problems require cross-disciplinary solutions. So how many of you are not technical engineering that are here? Okay, so. I mean, just the fact that, that, I mean, it's spectacular. So I think that's the first thing is that my PhD program was involved a uh, industry partner, which was Lockheed Martin. It involved the, the radiologists over the medical school. It involved engineers in uh, the information systems lab, you know, um, Al Makovsky as well as Joe Goodman. And so that was the culture I was brought up in. And so it never occurred to me that engineers would just do engineering and mathematicians would just talk to mathematicians and physicists would just talk to physicists and chemists would just talk to chemists. And on a very personal note, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, um, you know, I was diagnosed in, when my first year in graduate school with Hodgkin's disease, which, you know, fortunately I was diagnosed in the 70s and not the 60s, but, you know, prior to Henry S. Kaplan, who was a radiologist, who worked together with the physicists here at, at Stanford and Varian, where they took Slack, the, the Stanford Linear Accelerator, and shrunk it down to something in the size of a, of a hospital room where they could deliver high-intensity x-rays to kill the particular Reed-Sternberg cells. You're learning now more about Hodgkin's disease than you wanted to. Um, it, was, it was a fatal disease. You had two years to live. So that was a very, you know, that made a big impression, too, as the cross-disciplinary. It was a place that brought people together across disciplines to solve big problems. And uh, so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is it attracts the very best. I mean, look, e e the guys and gals in this audience, you're the very best. And with that comes, of course, a lot of responsibility. And I think that what I found at Stanford was a very supporting atmosphere where um, everybody wanted you to succeed. You know, I was thinking today, just in case you asked that question, not that I had it ahead of time, because that one I didn't. But anyway, uh, when I did my PhD exam in the front row, there were three Nobel Prize winners. That was pretty intimidating. I walk in, I'm looking down, and there's art, you know. And then several that probably should have won the Nobel Prize. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. But they were there because they were, you know, I had been there forever, been there eight years undergraduate and graduate. But I felt the support. And it was a very uh, nurturing and, and also competitive environment. You know, in the last place, it's, it's, it's a place, Stanford's a place where if you have a dream, people will help you try to make it come true. And I think that's what's so unique about it. Great. Well, that is wonderful. I want to open it up to questions from the audience. Yes. Usually the first. Full disclosure, I recently retired from Halliburton Energy Services. And I will not ask you about what the president said at the State of the Union about the inventing shale gas technology in the U.S. government. But I do want to ask you about invention and intellectual property in your new career. Yes. 
Uh, there's the American Invents Act has kind of changed the rules of the game. How does one deal with intellectual property to the advantage uh, in your business side? Well, I, I did some work with uh, the State Department on intellectual property before Copenhagen because that was one of the hot-button issues you know, in Copenhagen at the uh, climate change um, talks. And I think that as an entrepreneur, you need to have a competitive edge. If you're going to get people to invest in you, you need to have something there. And so usually people look at your intellectual property, and that could be know-how, it could be trade secrets, it could be patents. So I think that that's really important to be able to have something that gives you a little bit of barrier to entry. But, you know, that barrier to entry isn't going to be forever. And so I think that um, although it's important, I think that oftentimes people get a little bit too hung up on it. And I think the important thing is uh, there are a lot of, lot of excellent ideas out there. It's, it's actually the innovation of reducing them into something that people will pay you for, right? Or they will adopt. And I think that's something that we underrate, and it's very difficult to protect that. And I think that comes back to how do you put together a team of people that are going to take the hill for you, that are going to want to work with you and be together as a group until you realize the particular outcome. And I think that is coming back to it. If I were to take classes here, I would look at organizational behavior um, and ways of, you know, um, going, working and practicing on how, how you treat people like they wish to be treated. And, you know, that's, that's the soft side answer to that. Great. Yes. So that's actually a question following up on that. So you really got a great technical background here at Stanford going back the way to your PhD. Right. But how did you, or what resources did you find most useful in getting those leadership skills that you would use later on in academia and government and now in your own venture? Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. So I think some of the, um, uh, in terms of leadership, uh, the first one which we talked about a little bit is, is really getting to know people and build relationships because when you do have those stumbles and everybody will have the stumbles and everybody will have what they call failures, the people that you treat well will be around to help you get going again and you will help them. So I think that that's really important. I think the second thing is I did do a lot of reading. I read an awful lot of the, the uh, management and leadership books, and, and really I learned a lot. I mean, this may sound, um, uh, I hope, interesting, but it's absolutely true. I mean, at, at Duke, well, at Stanford I went to, there was a seminar series a little bit like this, but even back then, and we had leaders from Silicon Valley companies come in, and so I, I went to those, and I, I looked at people, and I kind of tried to understand what they did to get there. When I went to Duke, um, I looked at who were the, you know, who were two of the most high-profile recruiters because my job was going to be recruiting people, and it was the basketball coaches. So I went and I interviewed both the basketball coaches, and I adopted their techniques for learning where the best and the brightest were, so that because they were getting the number one recruiting classes in the country year after year, and other people were saying, well, how are you going to get people to move to Durham? I said, well, they figured it out. So I think it's looking around an organization and being open-minded and flexible enough to take advantage of the experts, even if they are dressed in sweats, you know. And so I think that was it. And then they turned me on to books that I could read. And so I tried to do a lot of catch-up that way. You mentioned that you were an athlete. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that and that, how that has influenced you? Because I know we have a lot of students athletes at Stanford. And right. I've always been very impressed with what they bring from that experience to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Right. 
You know, it's funny, when you asked what was my failure, uh, the one that, that was the most difficult to get over really was my athletic <laughs> one. So I played field hockey here and, and was on the varsity team. Didn't play as much as I would have liked uh, because truth be known, I wasn't that talented. Having said that, it's taken me a long time to admit, um, but it's true. What I realized was that, um, and I realized at the time, and it's important about knowing your role. So in different times and different places, you either will carry the water or you'll be the star. And what's important is to do each one of those jobs very well. And so I knew what my role was, and it was to make the kids that were Olympians better. And so I did, and I worked hard, and I made sure that every practice, those kids didn't dog it because they couldn't be shown up by someone who wasn't as good. And so I think that was a lesson that the athletics taught me. And then I, I founded the um, women's lacrosse program here, co-founded it. So, and that was a sport I, I actually could play better. <laughs> so, um, and that where I was a little bit more a leader there, I had to learn how to lead in other ways in a sport that I was not as gifted at. So I think, that, uh, I think that's one thing I'd recommend everyone to do. And, and going back to your question again, is leadership also is having persuasive uh, oral and written skills, being able to communicate your ideas. And I wish, one of the things I wish I would have done is written for the Stanford Daily or blog or, you know, it was writing for a newspaper then. That's so 20th century. <laughs> uh, but it, just to start writing, write, you know, just get it published, get it written, do blog, because that really will, will be something that will uh, serve you well. Great. Other questions? Yes. Tell me what you did learn from the, recruiter, the athletic recruiters at Duke um, that you were able to take with you. Okay, so uh, the question was, what did I learn from the athletic recruiters at Duke? So, you know, as a dean, I didn't have NC2A violations, right? I could do as many home visits as I wanted. So the number one thing is, you know, when you, you want to show people it's got to be genuine and from the heart, but that you respect them. And so the first thing I would do is I'd do home visits. So if the dean would go out, and sometimes I'd, and if we were trying to recruit someone, say, that could be in bioengineering and have an appointment in the medical school, an appointment in the engineering school, I would get the dean of medicine to go with me on a trip. And almost invariably, every time I'd go to a trip, I'd take the family, I, I would tour the labs. I would then take the family to dinner and get to know each other. And you learn a couple things that way. One is when I would walk down the hallways, and I did walk the hallways here at Stanford a couple times, um, I walked the hallways at Georgia Tech so often I got banned from the campus. No, that's sort of a joke, sort of. Um, what you learn is you, you see how people respect themselves. You see how, uh, I was recruiting faculty members. You'd see, do they look at their graduate students and do they smile? How do the graduate students view them, right? Um, are their labs clean? Have they ever been in the lab? Do they know how to turn on a piece of equipment in the lab? I mean, there are little things you pick up. And I think being there and showing them um, that you're interested in spending time with them is really, really important. That's probably the biggest thing, is the whole concept of the home visit and, and really um, just a personal touch and getting more people involved in it. So that, that, was, that was key. Great. Yes. Andrea Rossi has developed an energy catalyzer which utilizes cold fusion to produce heat energy. And if the United States takes full advantage of this technology, it can displace most of our need for fossil fuels. Why isn't the United States investing in this sort of technology? Well, I'd love to hear, you know, read more about it. So if I could get some information on it, that would be great. Any questions? 
you know what? Uh, yes, back in the back. Oh, my name is Robin, and you've been involved in business, politics, or policy, and education, academia. Which do you think is the most effective way of enacting like climate change or renewable energy change? And how do you think is the best way for somebody to get involved in that career? Well, great question. You know, I, I think that, that uh, and I'm glad I didn't go to my slides because, it, you know, this is much more fun and inter interactive. Um, but I think that uh, it requires everyone. And I'll tell you why I, I say that. It requires each sector. So each sector has an advantage. You know, in some sense, the government um, has funding and opportunity to move the needle. Uh, but you have uh, Congress that appropriates as well as does policy and appropriates working with the executive branch. And I think the one thing that, that we don't appreciate is the power that each one of us has to influence in a very positive way their representatives in Washington. They do listen to you. They do respond to their constituents. And so I would really recommend everybody to be very active in letting their voice be heard. Um, then I think about the university. And I think you've got an army of talented, bright, enthusiastic individuals who have one other thing going for them, and that is they, they don't know that, that they can't do anything. I mean, let me put that in positive. They haven't failed yet. I love undergraduate and graduate students because they'll try to take on, I mean, it's sort of like the, the old saying, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? You'd try and solve our energy problems. You'd try and solve the, the climate change. You'd take on great things, and students have taken on great great projects and been very successful. So one of the things that, you know, I, I wanted to be part of the advisory board for EPI because I thought that, you know, this is the right place to engineer pathways to innovation to solve important problems. So let me give you a little background okay. on that. We just got a uh, National Science Foundation grant to transform engineering education across the United States to make undergraduate engineers um, in all these engineering schools more innovative and entrepreneurial. And Christina Johnson has agreed to be on our advisory board. So right, we are very appreciative of that and really look forward to getting your input and guidance as we move forward. We just launched a couple of months ago. Yeah. In, in the last piece is is what companies allow you to do, especially if you're running them, which is hopeful, uh, helpful, I mean, <laughs> maybe helpful too, uh, is um, really the, the, you could be an all-out entrepreneur because you're really unfettered just by your ability to you know, convince people that adopting your technology, your approach, your process will help them. And so it's very, very, very simple. I mean, how many of you heard of Dean Kamen? You know, so, okay, so, you know, fabulous national resource, been very innovative, did the Segway, uh, did the, um, I think, the, the, what, kidney dialysis machine and portable insulin pump. Here's what he said to me. I said, Dean, how do you, how do you generate business? How do you, how do you figure the, all these things out? And he goes, it's really simple. I sit down with the doc and I say, what's your problem? You know, and I thought, oh, wow. And then they tell me my problem and then I solve it. So those, uh, that's a lot of freedom, you know, as long as you can get someone to pay for it. Great. My name is Anton. Uh, I came from Russia to discover some possibilities of Silicon Valley for, in solar energy. Actually, uh, briefly, we have a technology which can uh, improve uh, uh, energy conversion of solar panels. Uh, by up to 25% of any manufacturer. Wow. And uh, I think the uh, most important uh, skill of the entrepreneur to find the right people to talk to. Mm -hmm. And uh, what can you advise uh, how to, to find these people? Well, that's a great question. And um, 
first of all, I'd love to read both technologies that, are, that have been mentioned today. So please, if you follow up, I'd like to do that. Um, and then I might be able to be helpful in terms of giving you contacts. You know, I think doing what you're doing here, networking, is very important. I also think that uh, with a lot of the web 2.0 tools, I looked at uh, developing a set of software in a company that, that uh, failed, actually. <laughs> but it was a great technology uh, of how to connect people based on um, their ideas, right? So I won't go into details there. So, um, you know, maybe we could talk for a few minutes afterwards. So let me ask you, where do you see your career going from here? I mean, you've sort of done all these very interesting things with, you know, very uh, large goals and, and big challenges, and you're right. launching this company. You know, where do you see that going, and is there something in the future that you imagine that you'd love to try? You know, um, for the last year since I left the government, I've really enjoyed sleeping. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you, when I worked in the government, I, we really... Everybody works really hard in the government. It's exhilarating, and you will never, I mean, you'll never have another job like it. But I would come home at night, and when I'd get four or five hours of sleep, I was just like, oh, this is so nice. So I've enjoyed the last year just getting, you know, like seven hours. So now that I've, I've reached that goal, um, I think, you know, I'd like to do, I'd like to potentially raise a fund where we could, um, you know, that would be focused on energy but would have a little longer-term horizon than a typical fund. I think that would be really very exciting and to try. And really what I want to do is there's a tremendous amount of capital to, to be brought off the sidelines. And I'm trying to figure out how to match that capital with some of the opportunities. And it wouldn't have to be just people with large amounts. You know, here's a hydropower plant will run for 50 years. We saw one in Hawaii that's been continuously running since 1904. This is crazy. And the kind of returns that you get on something like that far out, you know, outbeat an average of the stock market over the same period of time, right? So how do you provide the opportunity for investors to invest in very safe, reliable, you know, very old technology, but that's been modernized. It's now there's fish, fish friendly, easy for me to say, turbines, and it's, it's really great technology. And I haven't quite figured out the financial model yet, so I'm probably intrigued by that. Great. So the next career is a VC. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or, is it, or running. Fun. Okay, great. Yes. Uh, I have a question about all your transitions that you've had. Yes. Um, have they been more about your desire for change, or more about kind of taking an, an opportunity that's that's come before you? You know, I think that. Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was a professor for 14 years, and I was definitely you know in the lab working really very serious about the academic enterprise and graduated um, close to 20 PhD students and really was very, very serious about that. I, I think that um, the ability to, to have change then and, and to expand the impact on the next scale up as a dean so I wouldn't just be in optics or electrical engineering was very attractive and I felt that I had done the one career long enough and you know, I'd figured it out. I think I do remember one day waking up thinking, okay, now I know what the rest of my life will be like. And that was a little scary, you know? So. Becoming dean, I also, I, I didn't want to do it for more than 10 years. You can either get a, a job done in 10 years or you can't. So I was there for eight. And we did, you know, set out some goals and carried those out. Um, you know, provost is a very challenging job. I think Stanford has a fabulous pro, provost uh, at Chemendi. And it, it really takes um, a, a special kind of person. I'm 
provost was uh, something that I enjoyed in terms of being around faculty and doing some of the cross-disciplinary programs. But it isn't generally, I, I knew it wouldn't be a position I was going to stay in for a long period of time. So, um, but you know, you, you make a decision and you move and then you find another opportunity. And so I never thought I'd go into the government. But what a, you know, it was incredible. You know, it was an, an, just an amazing opportunity. So I guess the advice I would say is just, you know, watch, keep your eyes open and, and be flexible. And, and um, sometimes you'll have to move in order to, and, and that's hard. You know, change is, is tough, but it's, it's very rewarding. It's very worthwhile. So expand your network as, as much as you can. Uh, Dr. Johnson, I was just wondering, through the conversations you, you had with faculty and, and different people you've worked with throughout the years, what's the most valuable thing you've learned about, about people and, and how you interact with them? You know, that's a great, so the question is, what's the most valuable thing I've learned about people and interacting with them? Wow, that is a big question. So can I give you a short answer? Yeah. But, um, I, you know, someone once said to me, when you look at somebody and you say, nice to meet you, is to say, nice to see you, and look at them right in the eye. And I think it, it shows that you're invested in that person as who they are and what they can do and what they can be. And I think that's the most important thing is to show you know, people respect that you care. And you know, I'm not perfect at it, but I, I know in my heart that that's the most important thing you can do. So I see you. Thank you. Last question over there. Please say it loud. Just following up on that. Um, it's one thing to say, hey, I care about you and your career. Yes. It's another thing to have a thousand faculty members and have trade-offs. How do you right. make those trade-offs and how do you show that you care even when you can't deliver on those days? All right, so the question is, <clears throat> it's great to say you care and it's easy to do that maybe if I could paraphrase one-on-one, -on -one, but how do you do that when you have thousands of people? Um, so it's, um, first thing I think you do is by example. Let me give you a short little story. I went to visit John Chambers as an alum of Duke, a couple years at Duke in West Virginia, and I went to go visit him. Um, deans tend to find their most, um, say, how would you say, successful individuals and just make sure they, they are connected, right? So uh, Mr. Chambers came down to meet me in the lobby. The door opened and there was a delivery man struggling with a box. Before I could even look over to get there, he was already there opening the door, helping the guy carry the box in the door. Now that, that simple thing tells you he cares about people. He never knew that I'd be giving a talk at Stanford be talking about it. Frankly, neither did I. But, but I think that's really important. And so to show by example, um, when I first went to Duke, there was a lot of trash outside the engineering school, you know, because there was a, a, there was a road and people would throw trash for whatever reason. It wasn't just specific to Duke anywhere it would be. Uh, we closed down the road and we built our, our, our uh, building. But I used to carry a plastic bag. It was plastic. Ah, I would never do that again. I'd have a recyclable bag. Ah, this was 10 years ago. Okay. Ah, anyway. and I learn. Yes, exactly. I'd pick up trash. And I never thought anybody noticed. But all of a sudden, there was no trash out there because other people were picking up the trash. And that goes back to uh, Joe Keller. Does anybody know who Joe Keller is? All right, Joe Keller, fabulous math professor here. And uh, he used to come in, and the whiteboard, because we had not whiteboards, we had chalkboard. The chalkboard would be filled with equations every day. And he would talk about his professors, which were, um, I think, Herbert and, I mean, famous Courant he, he, he took classes from. And one day he, he told this story about how one of his professors, a student came to him and said, why are you erasing the board? This is as he's erasing the board, right? 
And Courant said, well, you know, I have to erase the board, you know, but you never had to do that in, in the old country. And he goes, yeah, such is the price of freedom. <laughs> After that story, when Keller came to class, he never had to erase the board again. Because we took it upon ourselves to make sure that board was ready for our class and to erase it. So I think that the power of, of really being an example and being disciplined. So the other thing that you'll see great leaders do is that you always make time in your schedule to have walk-ins, right? So we would have coffee uh, at 3 o'clock on Wednesdays. Always had office hours for students and faculty so that people could get in. And I think that's just important. You've got to make time in your schedule. Even though you don't have any time, you've got to. And that sends a message, too. Well, you've sent us some wonderful messages. I want everyone to join me in thanking Christina Johnson. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.